Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 21. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, although it has lost much of its luster in the 21st century, heavyweight boxing produced some of the most memorable moments of the 20th century. And arguably, the greatest and most memorable of those fights occurred on October 1st, 1975, between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, a fight that is now known as the Thrilla in Manila. And while Ali eventually won that fight, both boxers demonstrated not only tremendous skill and power, but also tremendous endurance and fortitude. 
For neither fighter would fall or back down no matter how many thunderous blows they received. And so after the fight, Joe Frazier, who lost, even marveled at Ali's ability to stay standing. He said, in Manila, I hit him with punches, and those punches, they'd have knocked a building down. But they didn't knock Ali down. For you see, the goal in boxing is as much to stay standing yourself as it is to knock the other person down. And the greatest boxers, therefore, are not just those who can hit the hardest. They are those who can take the hardest hits and stand firm. And the same is true for Christians who live in the midst of a cosmic clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And therefore, you see Christians repeatedly commanded in Scripture to stand firm. So Paul writes to the Ephesians saying, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Christians, as spiritual exiles living in a foreign land, must learn to stand firm in their faith even as the devil and their sin and the world repeatedly tries to knock them down. This is one reason I find the book of Daniel so helpful, because it describes how Daniel and his three friends were taken from their home in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, where they had to learn themselves how to stand firm as God's people living in a foreign land that did not worship the one true God. And so throughout their lives, they were tempted and tried. They received blow after blow in an attempt to make them fall and ultimately forget their God. And the same Christian is true for you. And so this morning, I'm going to consider with you the devil's strategy to make you fall and then consider Daniel's strategy to stand firm ending with the word of hope that we read in verse 21, a verse which foreshadows who is still standing when the bell rings. Now the story of Daniel begins with the initial fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. And at this time, you see in the first two verses that King Jehoiakim and the vessels of God's house were taken away to Babylon. In verses 3 through 6, however, you read that they weren't the only things taken from Babylon. For some of the members of the royal family and nobility, those who were the best and the brightest, the bold and the beautiful, were also taken and trained and educated so that they could ultimately serve as officials and advisors in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make these Israelite youths thoroughly Babylonian, so that they would serve him. His goal then was to brainwash and reprogram them, to break their Judaism and reshape them in a thoroughly Babylonian image. 
He, temp- he attempts to do this in four ways. And I believe this four-part process is still one of the devil's common strategies today. But before I walk you through this strategy, let me emphasize that Daniel and his three friends who we read about were youths. They were very young. Based on when Jerusalem first fell, how long Daniel ultimately served in Babylon, and the common life expectancy in those days, it is probable that Daniel and his three friends, as we read about them in chapter 1, were somewhere in the range of 13 to 17 years old. Nebuchadnezzar was targeting teenagers. And let this be a reminder to us that the devil does not follow the rules of war. He targets youth. He targets children. And so kids, young people, while this message is certainly important for all of us to hear, I want you to especially pay close attention this morning. And don't just think this is for the older people to hear. Because spiritual warfare doesn't follow age requirements. You need to learn how to stand now because the devil is coming after you now. So what is his strategy? Well, the first part of the strategy is isolation. Nebuchadnezzar removed these youths from Jerusalem. He removed them from the place of true worship, probably from their parents and family, from any influence that would promote holiness and godliness, and he brought them all the way to Babylon to be trained in the Babylonian court by Babylonian officials. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, separated from the furnace of godliness, the king anticipated that the last dying embers of true faithfulness to the Lord would die out. So remove them from the furnace of holiness, and their faith will eventually flicker out. Isn't this one of the strategies that we see employed in our very own nation, in schools, in healthcare, and other arenas? Haven't we seen those pushing LGBTQ plus policies and other secular agendas, aiming at weakening marriage, dissolving this nuclear family, undermining parental authority, giving youth the autonomy to make their own health care and identity decisions? and introducing sexual identity ideologies into curriculums as early as kindergarten. Here, then, is the exhortation to Christian parents and to Christian churches. You must be the primary influences in the lives of your covenant children. Your job isn't to cut your children off from the rest of the world, but it is to surround your children with what will promote and produce holiness and godliness because the world is aiming to cut your children off from Christ. Now, I'm not saying there's only one way for parents and churches to to raise or school children. What I am saying is that as you make decisions for your children, including how you are going to school them, You need to do so understanding that you and other believers must, by God's grace, have the place of primacy in molding their hearts and minds. 
You must not let yourselves or your children be isolated from the furnace of godliness. Don't let the young and weak be separated from the herd by wolves and lions who would seek to devour them. Again, I'm not trying to encourage parents and churches to be overbearing, but what I'm saying is that when it comes to raising covenant children, a hands-off approach is unacceptable and it is unbiblical. That's the first part of the strategy, isolation. The second part is indoctrination. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just isolate these youths and let them be. He then proceeded, we read, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We read that they were to be educated for three years. In other words, his goal was to have the youths re-educated, not only teaching them what to think, but reshaping how they think. He wanted to undo the worldview that they had learned throughout through the Old Testament scriptures and teach them to think like Babylonians, imbibing Babylonian languages, mythology, historiography, astronomy, mathematics, and medicine. He wanted them to think like Babylonians instead of like Israelites. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. And he knew that how you think shapes how you live. In the same way, the devil knows that if you start to think like the world thinks, then you will start to live like the world lives. But biblical reason is not the same as worldly reason. Biblical morality is not the same as worldly morality. This is why Paul commands the Romans in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now listen carefully. I am again not saying That it is wrong to read non-Christians or to study science or medicine, history, mathematics, literature, philosophy, and the like. Christians ought to study and engage in these things. I am simply saying that it must be done from a biblical perspective with biblical presuppositions. In other words, the Bible and not the culture should dictate not only what you think, but how you think about God, about yourself, and about the world. Notice, God gives Daniel and his friends learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God wasn't saying, Daniel, three friends, you you can't study these things. He blesses their studies. But the question is about what ultimately shapes the way you think. Whose word dictates your life? Is the culture teaching you how to read your Bibles? Or is the Bible teaching you how to understand and read your culture? This is why at Good Shepherd, and I'm sure it's true here, That's why I repeatedly emphasize the ordinary means of grace for life and ministry. Why we ought as churches to emphasize corporate worship, family worship, catechizing our children. When people visit Good Shepherd, they 
One of the first questions that they have kids is, what, what, what's your strategy for, for teaching and raising our kids? While we do more than this, what I say is we start with two things as our foundation. Family worship and the family in worship. Which means that we as parents are first teaching our children the faith in our own homes. Parents, are you gathering every night or as many nights as you can to read and to pray and to sing with your children? The church is not here for parents to pass off to to teach your children the gospel. The church is here to come alongside you as parents to teach your children the gospel. Just as we heard from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, teach your children diligently family worship. I actually just heard a statistic yesterday at our presbytery meeting that said across the board, whether it's conservative, evangelical, mainline, liberal churches, two-thirds of our children are leaving churches and the faith once they graduate from high school. It doesn't matter what kind of churches, two-thirds. Yet a recent study came out that the significant exception to this is where the faith is taught in the homes, 90% of children are continuing on in the faith as they go off. Family worship and then family in worship, meaning this. We as churches do not want to communicate to our children that the faith is for us adults And they are at best a hindrance and distraction. And so when we gather for corporate worship, we send them somewhere else so that we can focus. This is where our children belong. They belong where God's spirit and God's word are working. They may not understand everything, but you think the spirit can't be working in the heart of a child who doesn't cognitively understand everything that's happening? You better believe he does. Our children should be with us. They need to see their parents. They need to see other godly individuals worshiping the Lord, praising His name. They need to understand that they are part of the covenant community and this faith is for them and not just for adults when you reach a certain age. For the world is always catechizing our children. When you sit down to watch a Disney movie, that movie is going to teach your children a certain worldview. We, therefore, need to make sure that God's Word is teaching us and our children not only what to think, not only what conclusions we're coming to, but how we come to those conclusions. For the devil wants to make you thoroughly worldly, and that will make sin start to look really normal, and righteousness start to look really strange. Isolation, indoctrination, number three, temptation. In verse five, we also learn that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So these youths are getting the very food and drink that the king has. They're getting the best of the best. Now, I put this in the category of temptation Because I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar is just trying to make sure that these youths are as healthy as they possibly can be. I believe he's trying to seduce them to a life of Babylonian pleasure and opulence. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is to tempt Daniel and his three friends to start believing that comfort, that pleasure, that the good life comes from the king and his court and not from God. 
Ferguson again helps us in this summary saying the good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. It would encourage him to focus on himself and on a life of enjoyment. It would lead him to think of himself no longer as a servile Israelite, but as a distinguished courtier. And isn't this still how the devil works today? Yes, he may violently persecute God's people at times and cause them to suffer greatly, but he often works more subtly, more craftily as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Suggesting if if you want to reach divine status, you don't obey God's word, you disobey it. I can give you a better life. And isn't this how he worked when Jesus was in the wilderness, promising to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if Jesus would but bow down to and worship him? In other words, saying the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus, you can have this without going to the cross. Just worship me, and you can have it now. The devil is often at work trying to seduce and deceive God's people into forgetting that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And thinking that the devil and his kingdom, this earth, are the true source of blessing. The goal, therefore, as another scholar summarizes, is always to obliterate our memory of the Lord to re-educate our minds to his way of thinking and to instill in us a sense that all of the good things in life come from the world around us and from the satisfaction of the desires of our own flesh. Isolation, indoctrination, temptation, all leading to the fourth part of the strategy, which is ultimately re-identification. This really is the end of the first three parts of the strategy, and you see it in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, four of these Jewish youths are finally named. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, two forms of God's name appears at the end of those four names. El is the Hebrew word for God. So, Daniel means God is my judge. Mishael means who is like God. Yah is a shortened form of the, the name of the Lord Yahweh or Jehovah. So, Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And Azariah means the Lord is my helper. So these names, therefore, are rooting the identities of these young men in their God. Their names remind them every time they are called to whom they belong. It's no coincidence, then, that they are each given new Babylonian names that have the name of a Babylonian God attached to the end. For the devil desires to destroy God's image in you and remake you in his own. He desires to obliterate your sense of identity in Christ and root your identity in himself. The devil and the world desire to make you forget your God, who he is and who he is toward you. The devil and the world desire to make you forget to whom you belong and ultimately depend upon. Again, is it any wonder that our Western culture is so fixated on this idea of identity and rooting it in ourselves and our own sinful desires? 
So you need to understand the devil's strategies to make you fall if you are to stand against them. But knowing how he's working isn't enough. So let's consider Daniel's strategy to stand firm that we might glean some wisdom and strength to stand firm with him. The first part of the strategy to stand firm is simply that Daniel is resolved to stand. The contrast between verses 7 and 8 is striking, especially when you read it in Hebrew. For in verse 7, the Hebrew verb meaning to set is used twice. So literally it reads, and the chief of the eunuchs set them names. He set for Daniel Belteshazzar. But that exact same verb is immediately used again in verse 8 when it says, But Daniel resolved, or but Daniel set for himself that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. In other words, Daniel is consciously deciding that even though he has been taken away from his home, that he's been given a new education and a new name, he's not going to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. That's the line he says, I'm not going to cross. That, of course, leads us to ask the question, why? Why is that where he's taking a stand? Well, because of the word defile, many argue that Daniel wouldn't eat or drink these things because they violated the Mosaic food laws and they would have made him unclean. It's honestly what I always just assumed whenever I read through this passage. And that may be part of it, but I'm no longer convinced that that's the main reason for Daniel's objection. This is because there were no food laws about wine making you unclean. So while it could explain him refraining from certain meats, it doesn't explain why he would refrain from the wine. Another reason, and I don't think that's exactly the answer, is because later in chapter 10, at a much later time in Daniel's life, we read that Daniel says he was mourning for a period of three weeks. And he specifies that during that three-week period, he didn't eat any meat and he didn't drink any wine. But that suggests that he was eating meat and drinking wine at other times. So Daniel's refusal to eat and drink certain things in chapter 1, in light of chapter 10, suggests that his objection here in chapter 1 isn't just about the substance of the food or the wine, but it's about the circumstances surrounding them. This has then led others to think that the problem was that the king's food and drink would have been offered to idols, which is true. However, the the vegetables, which is just a a word signifying things that are naturally grown and includes includes fruit and grains, those would have been offered to idols too. So why does Daniel refuse? Well, while we don't know for certain because the text doesn't say... It seems that Daniel's resolve was set recognizing what the Babylonians were trying to do. In other words, this was Daniel's attempt to stand against the total assimilation of the Babylonian court and maintain his identity in the Lord. Again, the king's food and wine were an attempt to foster dependence upon the king's provision and assert him as the source of blessing. Daniel, therefore, was looking for some way to resist losing his identity and forgetting his God. So the Babylonians are challenging him at every step. Who are you? Who is your God? Who are you going to serve? 
And this is one of the ways that Daniel attempted to stand up to that challenge. You see another way that he resists in the very way he writes this narrative for us. Again, in verse 7, he notes what he and his friends were named, what they were called by the Babylonians, and they responded to those names. But then he immediately refers to himself again as Daniel in verse 8. And he uses their Hebrew names throughout the narrative. In chapter 1, verse 11, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 17. Throughout this, he refers to them by their Hebrew names, except when there's a lot of dialogue in the story because they were called by Babylonian names. And so he's not going to confuse us going back and forth all the time. But Daniel's manner of writing says, yes, these were the names that they called us. We answered to them. But these names were not who we were. Our identity, our allegiance didn't change with our names. I'm still Daniel. God is still my judge. And I still serve him. Now, in many ways, then, this... This stand of not eating the food and drinking the wine, it it may seem kind of a small, arbitrary stand to take. But I actually think that's part of the point. The point is that Daniel resolved to take this small stand when he was still very young and when the Babylonians were working to reprogram him and reshape his identity. And so we learn two things. If we don't take faithful stands in small things, we shouldn't expect that we're going to be able to take stands in big things later on in life. We are setting the trajectory. We are setting our habits now when in the little things we are deciding, am I going to be faithful to the Lord or am I going to be unfaithful to the Lord? We also see, therefore, that it is important to have this resolve and take your stand early in life. Yes, God converts and uses people even when that conversion happens later in life. But children, it is a great blessing to grow up in the covenant community of faith. You are forming habits now. You are adopting a certain identity now. Oh, how mighty and useful will we be if we begin to find strength in the Lord in our youth. You see, you read later of the the more famous parts of Daniel. Chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we're we're not going to bow down to this image. We will gladly be thrown into the fiery furnace. You read in chapter 6 where Daniel says, no, I'm not going to pray to the king. I'm going to keep praying to God. And he's thrown into a lion's den. And we think, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I want to be like that. I don't think Daniel and his three friends have that kind of resolve in chapters 3 and 6 if they don't start with that resolve in chapter 1. The small, faithful stands we take now are strengthening us by God's grace to take those big, faithful stands when they might arise later in life. Don't think that when we hear of these colossal failures and and falls of, of Christians, even prominent Christians, that that just happened overnight. As if someone was walking faithfully with the Lord and then all of a sudden the next day they wake up and commit adultery. Faithfulness is one little step at a time. For every little step is setting you in one direction or another. 
don't despise the day of small things. Don't think that this doesn't matter now. When, it, when it's really important, then I'll, then I'll take the stand. You learn to stand now. You wake up every day and pray by God's grace as I get ready, as I go to work, as I raise my kids, as I go grocery shopping. Lord, help me to honor you in all of these little things. But let me note two other aspects of Daniel's resolve. I want you to notice the great wisdom that this teenage Daniel demonstrates. I don't think anyone who knew me as a teenager would have described me as wise. I haven't met many teenage boys that I would describe as wise. Yet Daniel is very wise even at an early age. His wisdom is evident in the manner in which he works within the system here in chapter 1. Again, as you'll see in chapter 6, if you read further on, Daniel is not afraid to die for his faith. He will be thrown into a lion's den. But defiant disobedience is apparently not always necessary. Here, Daniel is not stubbornly defiant. He respectfully makes a request first to the chief eunuch and then to the eunuch's steward. He asks to be tested and demonstrate his fitness and usefulness. So as others have observed, Daniel did not throw a religious hissy fit, blowing off about Babylon's heavy-handedness and insensitivity. He simply looked around for the next possible step to take to see where that might land him. Daniel was not one of those people who believe that firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. Faithful courage is not always recognized by how loud and obviously defiant it is. Daniel doesn't refuse to stand in the king's court. In fact, it's his faithfulness that is eventually going to lead him to be an official and advisor in Babylon. Doesn't get much more ungodly than Babylon. And yet, this is where Daniel will serve for decade after decade. He becomes useful. He becomes a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar and subsequent rulers. So we must not therefore think that the faithful and courageous Christians are always the ones that are getting arrested or fired. We must not assume that Christians who work for for companies or governments that may promote some ungodly things have necessarily compromised their faith. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. Courage and cowardice are not distinguished by how loud and defiant one is. That leads to this other aspect of Daniel's resolve, which is not only does he work within the system at this point, but he clothes himself the whole time in quiet humility. He's always respectful. We do not read of any harsh words, proud-bearing, or histrionics. Rather, as Ferguson says, he responded to his situation in a spirit of humility and respect. If you desire to stand against worldly tyranny, always clothe yourself in Christ-like humility. You do not need to be brash and obnoxious to be faithful to God. After all, when your Lord and Savior was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You must be resolved to stand. Number two, and finally, you must trust in God's grace. 
In other words, it doesn't just matter that you stand. It matters where you stand. What are you standing upon? Because your resolve is not what's going to keep you standing. It is only the faithful, sovereign, merciful grace of Christ that will keep you standing. Yet again, we see in Scripture this antinomy of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Daniel has to make decisions. He has to take faithful stands. But he is all the while entrusting himself to God's grace, which God gladly gives him. You see this in verses 9 and 17. When Daniel humbly asked the chief eunuch not to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, we read, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. The the, the eunuch says, "I, I can't grant this request, but clearly he's not upset. Maybe he says, go talk to the steward. I don't care if he gets beheaded. So Daniel goes and talks to this other steward, and he makes a modified request. But the fact of the matter is that everything Daniel does is in the hands of the Lord. Daniel is not presumptuous, but he is confidently expectant that God will bless his resolve, and the Lord does bless Daniel's faithful stand. Now, it's important to note that that word you see, God gave him favor and compassion, is used in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 50, after the temple is built and Solomon gives that beautiful prayer of dedication. And during that prayer, Solomon prays in light of the future unfaithfulness of Israel. He says, God, if we break your covenant and one day we find ourselves as exiles in a foreign land, would you give us compassion in the sight of our captors? He writes, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. Oh, what a graciously sovereign God we serve. For when the prayers of his people... For the prayers of his people remain forever in his mind, even when we have long forgotten what we ever prayed for. You think there's things you've prayed for for years, and eventually you just think, okay, I'm going to stop praying for that. The Lord doesn't forget. Solomon prays a prayer hundreds of years later. That prayer is answered in the lives of Daniel and his friends. This is God's answer to Solomon's prayer. And while God's grace is not at the forefront in chapter 1, it is the undertow that carries the passage into its next stages. For why would a Babylonian official care about the sensitive consciousness of a conscience of an exile slave? Like our faithful stands, we often think that God's grace should be loud and obvious so we can see it. But his sovereign grace is often quietly working when no one is even noticing it. You see it again in verse 17. God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The Lord blesses their studies. He causes them to rise in the ranks. He brings them to stand in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Just like he did with Joseph in Egypt. They had to study, they had to work hard, but they did so entrusting themselves to the sovereign goodness and grace of God. And they are found to be ten times better than everybody else. 
Daniel set his heart not to defile himself, but even more so, he set his heart upon the grace of God. It is, as Peter writes in 1 Peter, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So you hear those commands, be holy as God is holy. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. You may think, okay, that's the Christian life. I just pull up my bootstraps, I go. But don't forget what Peter said first. Set your hope fully on the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how you will be holy as the Lord is holy. Kids, that's what you have to resolve now. Are you going to trust in yourself, in the world, or are you going to trust in Christ? Live by grace. For Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty king. Babylon was a mighty kingdom. And Daniel and his friends, on the other hand, were just four teenagers living in exile, trying to stand firm in their faith. And if you had put money on that fight, you would have all bet on Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And yet... We read in verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, you may just skip over a verse like that and think, well, that, that's okay, that's a historical observation, and it is. But why is it wonderfully glorious? Because Cyrus wasn't a Babylonian, he was a Persian. He began reigning in 539 BC. And that is all significant, first, because the great Nebuchadnezzar at this time is long dead and buried. Second, Babylon's no longer the superpower in the world. Persia is. Third, 539 is the year that Cyrus decrees that the Jews get to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And fourth, Daniel's still standing and serving in the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar's in the ground. Daniel's still standing. We as Christians may feel small in that our faithful stands for Christ and the gospel are insignificant. After all, none of us have the worldly power and influence of presidents and prime ministers. CNN and other media outlets are not having live updates every 10 minutes about what we're doing like they do with the war in Ukraine. But kings and kingdoms will rise and fall according to God's will. And only God's people... Only the church will remain standing, and it is their faithfulness, not the riches and pleasures of this world, that will last into eternity. So take heart, be courageous, and stand firm in hope, for the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The world is mighty, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has already overcome the world. Those who stand upon the solid rock of Christ will be those left standing at the end. And so I close with the commands that John gives us in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let us pray. Our Father, I know that whenever I read Daniel, I think I want to be like Daniel. I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Father, I thank you that my hope is, is not in the strength of my faith. It's not in the strength of my resolve. It is in the strength of Christ upon which we all stand by faith. So we thank you that even when we are weak, when we would fall because of sin and the world and the devil, we know that we will stand because Christ has promised that he will never let us go. He will hold us upright. So as we go forth this day, may we go forth with with boldness, with courage, with humility, with joy, with hope that we belong to Christ and he belongs to us. May that be the foundation upon which we stand this day from infancy until the grave. Amen.